in football, I never seen something stinks like this. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only podcast to know that you are not sated until you are quaded. I'm Jeb Lund, and I'm here with growling shower alligator Sarah D. Bunting. Ah. And uh, I'm very excited about this episode for two reasons. One, because we're watching Any Given Sunday, a movie about boys and their emotions. And two, because we have a guest... He's recently been a guest again on Sarah's other gig, Extra Hot Great. He's a co-founder of Defector.com and co-host of the Distraction Podcast. And he is also the co-host of the wildly beloved Hallmark Movies Podcast. It's Christmas Town. Please welcome the psychic thunderstorm rolling within me whenever I confront a father figure, David J. Roth. <laughs> Just imagine the sound of a lightning strike here or some uh, kind of culturally insensitive vocalization on the soundtrack. <laughs> no need to imagine that, really. Sigh. <laughs> we need to get down to a little bit of pod business. Uh, first of all, as you know, the cuffs counter. Thank you. The cuffs counter currently <laughs> rests at zero for this episode and will remain at zero for the entirety of this cuffs counter update, by the way. Of course, if you are on our Patreon, you can hear our bonus episode of the film cuffs in which the cuffs counter is, for obvious reasons, disabled. Mm-hmm. Sarah, do we have any further pod business? Have there been stirrings at the graveside of the Denisons? I just buried a handful of silver bullets at the foot of uh, the <laughs> gravesite of the Denisons and haven't been back since. So as far as I know, we are we are OK. Dave, have you encountered Dennis Quaid, the multimedia phenomenon, the man who is the, uh, as they say, busiest in the biz? <laughs> Dennis Quaid, like, have, did you listen to his podcast? I didn't listen to the podcast. I read about it with great interest. It could not have had me more intensely than it did upon encountering the word denaissance. And then knowing that it was that it was actually him doing it. I was like, all right, man, like this is like I felt like I didn't really need to listen to it. Like it would just I would have encountered it as a soundscape or as free jazz. Speaking of jazz, we watched a movie that you requested any given Sunday. Do you have before we get into the plot summary? on this should we explore maybe your reasons to engage with this text well uh sure if you'd like to um it's my friends have a podcast where they talk about every dennis quaid movie and i hadn't been Uh on it yet and i was like what's the dennis quaid movie that i like and i had a hard time coming up with one and then i remembered (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah it turns out he is in any given sunday i'd sort of forgotten about that uh i'd forgotten a lot of things about this movie and so beyond being a you know a real exploration of the outer boundaries of filmmaking done by people who are permanently on LSD. There's also like an element of it of just rewatching an Oliver Stone movie or any movie from like this period to me. Like I found this out when I was on uh, Jesse Hawkins podcast a while back talking about The Fan, which is probably Tony Scott's worst movie. And I saw it around the same time <laughs> as this. I just saw every movie that came out in like 99, 2000, 2001. And the memory that I had of that was like, I remembered it wasn't good, but otherwise my memory of it was very episodic. And I was like, there's, there must have been things happening between this moment where Robert De Niro throws a knife through a cockroach and this moment where he skins Benicio del Toro. And it turns out there isn't. Actually, the movie was as episodic as I remembered it. And in this case, I am pleased to report that any given Sunday is not any clearer after having finished watching it a couple of hours ago than it was <laughs> when in my memory before I started watching it a couple of hours before that. Like it is truly expressionistic and bizarre and some real late 90s shit. And I mm. actually enjoyed it a lot more on a rewatch than I would have expected to. Well, let, let me <laughs> roll this back a little bit. You said a Dennis Quaid movie that you liked and instead you've just picked this one are you prejudiced man against uh, dennis yeah no i'm just pro randy and i'm i'm a little bitter i guess about <laughs> how that's gone for me because he's out there he's on the run from the star whackers sir what is it about baseball guys being pro randy i don't know calcaterra is pro randy I, I think that's just like the first joke to hand and uh that's all right yeah, that is mostly it. I mean, like, I have enjoyed Dennis Quaid stuff. It's just like you could watch a Dennis Quaid movie without. I think this is why uh, your podcast is performing such a valuable cultural service. Is that <laughs> I think that people watch Dennis Quaid movies without ever really thinking of them as Dennis Quaid movies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a, a radical reframing of that experience. Fair enough. Mm. Yeah. I'm trying to, trying to use some art professor words here to describe the fact that 
you guys have watched 600 movies with Dennis Quaid in them. And we're, we're only up to 1999. That was a thought that I had um, <laughs> when I re- was reminded, you know, by buying this on a stream when it came out. And I was like, they're not even into this millennium yet. And it's been a minute. This is season six of your podcast I'm seeing. It will be season six. This is the season five finale. So, wow. What an incredible honor to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. It's going to get a little bit better, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. Yes, I concur. Having watched all of uh, Vegas. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I thought thought you were talking about our ability, and I was going to be like, you know, that's fair. No, I mean, well, that's true broadly of all of us, I think. Like, just the rest of our lives could be described that way. I just mean the experience of, like, watching uh, Dennis Quaid movies from, like, 2017 is going to be rough stuff. Sarah, shall I launch into the plot summary? Uh, yeah, I was about to use the word exegetical, so stop me before I kill again. (laughs) What's this movie about? Church? It starts with a whistle and ends with a gun. 60 minutes of close inaction from kickoff to touchdown. This is pro football. Al Pacino is Tony D'Amato, longtime Pantheon Cup winning head coach of the Miami Sharks of the Associated Football Franchises of America and a man who has never met a weak side counter he can't run consecutively in long yardage situations. Dennis Quaid is Cap Rooney, the aging veteran and champion QB of the Sharks married to a half Stepford, half reptiloid. And Jamie Foxx is Willie Beeman, a flashy, running, distinctively urban third string quarterback for the Sharks who has been ignored, misused and spoken over since NCAA coaching, and since an NCAA violation for accepting gifts from a booster. And lastly, Cameron Diaz is Christina Pagniacci, owner and GM of the Sharks, a Cornell MBA grad who longs to claw out from under her father's shadow as the face of the franchise. We open late in the season with the Sharks clinging to playoff relevance. Both starter Cap Rooney and the number two QB go down to a sudden attack of O-line invisibilitis. And in comes Willie Beeman to rely too much on run plays and being incapable of making fast enough defensive reads And you can imagine how PTI was the next day. It's QB controversy time. Christina Pagniacci wants to save money, trade cap for picks, and groom Beeman for next year, push out crusty old D'Amato, and install the high-flying offensive coordinator Nick Crozier, played with a distinctively masculine take on the Lane Kiffin role by uh, by Aaron Eckhart. (laughs) The team wins the next game as Beeman changes the plays in the huddle. He's faded by an impossibly Jim Romish sports pundit portrayed by John C. McGinley with lethally accurate levels of Jim Rome cringe, but without the garden gnomishness or the glutinous moisture of Jim Rome. (laughs) Beeman takes to sports media like a fish to water and begins talking like a Taylor Branch essay, which makes D'Amato's halting, how do you do, fellow kids? Do you Afro-Americans still like jazz? And attempts to relate to Beeman seem even more tone deaf and dated. But Beeman gets a big head in the press and alienates his team on both sides of the ball, leading to a devastatingly moist home loss heading into the playoffs. Pagniacci and D'Amato seem headed to permanent Splitsville as Lauren Holly slaps DQ's mopey mug and tells him to get back on the field and injure himself between now and the time he becomes unprofitable. Quaid's mopey cap tries to take himself out of the wild card game, but D'Amato asks him for his last full measure. Before the game, D'Amato delivers the speech that you now see excerpted on the Jumbotron heading into the ninth inning when your team is down. Fresh off getting truth-bombed in a sauna by Lawrence Taylor, this speech is finally enough to break through to Beeman and get him to see that there is no eye in team redship. Cap gets concussed, scoring a touchdown, but urges D'Amato to put Beeman in for the second half, which he agrees to do minutes before the owner comes down to yell at him to put Beeman in. Steeman Willie Beeman immediately throws a pick, but he humbles himself before the team. They all put aside their own selfishness and win. After the game, after finally understanding each other, the coach walks away on Beeman before he can tell him his shoulder's starting to hurt him. There are some other stories that are ongoing. James Woods is a Dr. Feelgood, eventually replaced by a more moral Matthew Modine. Elizabeth Berkeley is a high-priced call girl. Cameron Diaz getting busted for market shopping by an activist league commissioner played by Charlton Heston who's horny for her mom, played by Anne Margaret, as a delightfully drunk casualty of football. And then, of course, there's Lawrence Taylor, the star of the film. Uh, and Bill Bellamy and Jim Brown are in it as well. It's just, you know, they're also there. What about LL? And, uh, of course. And we also get an end credits epilogue where we watch D'Amato announce his retirement and throw a swerve. He's taking the head coach and GM gig for the expansion Albuquerque team, and he's taking Willie Beeman with him. Their combined record over the next three seasons will be 18 and 30, with one trip to the wild card where they lose to a team coached by Marty Schottenheimer, who goes on to lose in the conference championship. The end. Wow. You know, that makes it sound like a lot happens in this movie, which is 
157 gloriously overdirected yeah. minutes long. Unrushed. <laughs> but it is a, a movie that I'm fond of, although it's terrible. And I would say that it is a Poppy Fields movie, which is one of those that like you just become becalmed by mm-hmm. and watch it even though there's commercials on you sort of have like one boot on you're trying to get out the door and then it's like oh but here's the you know music video which is hilarious like it's not good but it's long and it's very watchable in its not goodness but i did not remember because i never watched it before sort of with an exegetical eye drink Ooh, there it is i didn't realize just how short a timeline the events of the movie cover yes i was hooting at that like it just takes forever like it the end felt like real time like with the clock stopping and everything like oh my god like the last 10 seconds of a playoff football game that go on for a week it was filmed in real time there's lightning there's black and white there's various unitases running around in leather helmets and then you're like but what is actually happening not that much and most of it happens at the at the credits like oh here's the you know here's the twist and then we're out i guess also this shit looks so cheap i never noticed yeah. that before but man this looks so cheap so cheap. One of my first notes was like, there's no way to make not the NFL look like the NFL. It, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at not the NFL as you're watching it. And you're like, this isn't the NFL. Yeah. It's and the stadiums, it. I think, for yes. me. That it comes. I mean, some of it is just that a shot at field level in a football game, like NFL stadiums are unimaginably vast. If you've been around field level on one of those things, you're engulfed by it. And they clearly were shooting at like the biggest stadiums that you could rent for a non NFL football movie. And like, I guess that gets you pretty close, but for sure not close enough. It, it felt like Puppy Bowl. It was just like yeah. all foreshortened <laughs> distances. The lighting was like, I don't know, if you were watching like 80s baseball at the vet and like a light bulb would just like visibly burn out in the middle of the game and they just never changed yes. it because it was fucking the vet. And I mean, we'll we'll get to this, but there are some members of the cast who can sell it as NFL players. And then there's Dennis Quaid's ass. Like, y'all, you have to work out your legs. You can't, you can't just do the top <laughs> yeah. half. Got to do some you got to do some presses. Come on. Th- there's just nothing. What a sad backyard. Even in the long tradition of physically unimpressive veteran NFL quarterbacks, which is like much longer than you'd think. You're right that all of those guys have thick relief pitcher butts and like yes. they just are, you know, they're used to running away from defensive <laughs> tackles all the time. Right. Like, how are you supposed to butt fumble with that? You can't. There's nothing there. You can't. It's too bony. Mm. The other thing that I was laughing when Sarah pointed this out that like, I think I've worked out the timetable. You you do become unstuck in time watching this movie and you're just basically going from one late 90s Oliver Stone camera trick. Or honestly, sometimes very well-written, sometimes much less well-written confrontation between like powerhouse actors. So you're doing that. I think this whole movie takes place over Rooney goes out. Beeman comes in. That's one game. Mm-hmm. Beeman wins his next two starts. That's two games. There's a bye week. And then it's Rooney and the last game of the season. So this is like in less than a month. The third string quarterback is on the cover of every magazine in the country, cuts the smash hit My Name is Willie video, oh, yeah. and becomes hailed as a warrior poet and a new breed of athlete by Jim Rome slash Jack Rose, I believe is the name of the character, <laughs> that I would love it if it happened that fast because it would have meant that for a brief period, Ryan Fitzpatrick would have been the most important athlete in America, but it doesn't work <laughs> like that. Well, there is a shot of the schedule that says it's the 2001 schedule. This will be in the visual yeah. aids, but it's like, oh, so we really are out of time. Like we really are in that timeline. I wouldn't have been phased at all if like it turned out that one of their opponents was, uh, you know, like Tyler Falco and Gene Hackman. What was that? The yeah. replacements with the Scottish yep. place kicker, Welsh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Reese. Yeah. Did walk out there like this is the same universe. You know, if he hate me came out, I would have been like, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has an XFL vibe to it. I think that the, I remember people making that comparison when the XFL happened, because like Vince McMahon was like, this is the NFL. If it wasn't all about bullshit. And everybody was like, no, that's the team with all the Templar iconography from any given Sunday. That's what you actually look like. Yeah. So contemporary reviews were 
like us, I think trying to be generous with something that was a lot of <laughs> itself, uh, that seemed to be the tone that, that I got from reading them. Uh, we'll go to our friend Ebert. The reason their characters aren't better developed is that so much of the film's running time is lost to smoke and mirrors. There isn't really a single sequence of sports action in which the strategy of a play can be observed and understood from beginning to end. Instead, Stone uses fancy editing on montage close-ups of colorful uniforms and violent action with lots of crunching sound effects. It's as if Stone wanted to pump up the volume to conceal the lack of on-field substance, which kind of goes for everything in it, uh, at yeah. least uh, approach-wise. Mm -hmm. And then Wesley Morris had this. To paraphrase some of the skanky South Beach hip-hop in any given Sunday, there's just too much booty in the pants. Excess is in the house. It goes wide, it goes long, it does the dirty bird. All brought to you by four, four editors, duking it out to determine which two close-up of the black saucers spinning around Coach Al Pacino's eyes is the money shot. Apparently, everybody won. Stone sticks his toe in the waiting pool of NFL, sorry, AFFA racism, and does a thoroughly dateline job of getting to the bottom of things. It's not that Stone doesn't have valid suspicions about what's wrong with American football. He's just decided to ignore it. It's as if he watched all the other football movies in the gym and wanted to make one bigger. So here's Any Given Sunday, a football epic on performance enhancers that may be more flagrantly flawed, more shockingly predictable, and just plain cornier than its rickety predecessors. Who knew that all Stone ever wanted to do was win one for the Gipper? Goddamn, Wesley Morris. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good writing, in my opinion. There was a lot of really good lines in that one, and it was tempting just to be like, I wrote this. This is me. This is what I thought. Yeah. We'll link to it in the show notes. I think that he does an excellent job of getting at my main issue with this, which is that I think that Oliver Stone could argue, and maybe did argue, that by bringing up so many like archetypal debates within... like observing the sport of football everything from stadium shopping to cte to sexism directed outward from the locker room to plantationism and the racial divide that he's like but my point was these problems continue and how are we going to solve them but really what he's doing is nodding at them and then not doing anything except wearing a daisy yellow sport coat and providing yeah. text. Oh, yeah. He puts himself in the movie. That's how you can tell he's committed. He was like, I'm going to be on set. At least during the scenes that I'm in, I'm going to physically be there. I mean it. Yeah. There's a bit where you have Pacino's D'Amato saying the problem is the media. And I mean, that has been a critique of Oliver Stone's in the past. I don't think that he doesn't mean that, but I'm not really sure how that critique works. The media didn't ruin football and... If anything, that like it's the media pumping up these personalities and creating these narratives for these individuals is very much an owner friendly and kind of anti labor sentiment. Like, who mm. are these guys who dare to have opinions and agency in shaping their future? And so, like, to the extent that there is a politics of the movie, it's really close to one I don't like. Yeah. Well, it's it's Oliver Stoneism. I think that's correct. I think yeah. it's also like with Stone. I think this is like you can see the limitations of it because I mean the Ebert assessment you know, less virtuosically written than the Morris one. But there is a great deal, I think, especially from this period of Oliver Stone, where he is drifting away from his interest in, like, making film as film. Like, he made some really interesting and similarly, like, kinetic and, and overwrought movies, you know, in the, the decade before this. But he was starting to enter the weird sucking up to foreign dictator political... Yeah. <laughs> part of his career yeah. you know and yeah. there's something in this where it's like he's observing all the problems and he's toting them off but there's not not only is there not like a solution to them it's like there's like this catechistic urge to just identify everything that is bad and gross and like i know that and i think in the 90s that's kind of what passed as left-wing politics it was this like super aestheticized version of dissent that operated basically from the, the perspective that like it was important to note and notice all of these things, but that really didn't deal in solutions. Like all of that stuff was still effectively off the table. And then as people started, you know, actually agitating for specific things in the last 20 years, I mean, not always with the success that you would want, Stone just kind of receded again to the aesthetic element of it. It's kind of a letdown because I feel like a real left-wing football movie directed by a dialed-in Oliver Stone sounds like it could kick ass and there's like 20 minutes of this movie that kick ass but not for anything that really has to do with a uh, political critique 
So what what you're saying, if I may, is what idiot called it any given Sunday and not Fight Club? <laughs> I think that's yeah, that's a pretty good pretty good summary. Cameron Diaz just like completely thanklessly being this collection of cardboard cutouts arranged to look like a three-dimensional character. But then like Oliver Stone has no idea how to deal with misogyny. <laughs> like th- This yeah. is not the person that you detail, but I think she's actually pretty good. Like I, I don't, do you want to talk about other performances and writing before we get into the quaidosity? Sure. I don't know as if she got the nicest direction she could have gotten because she really only has, Cameron Diaz really only has two tones through most of the movie. There's one demi-flirtatious bit, and then the rest is sort of like someone who's upset that like you were going to make her children Brench, Braitland, Brantz, and, uh, and uh, Brondi, you know, wear a mask I- inside the escape room. It seems almost as tonally kind of misogynistic as like the people at the end that it's it's castigating. It's just sort of like, well, here's a here's a soulless bitch. And then at the end, it's so I mean, it was nice to see. But I, I, I sort of wrote down like, why are we having this moment of growth where she's like, Mom, I apologize for not being a good person. And you're like, that's that's adult and healing. I'm not sure why this is here. I don't object, but I'm not sure how it got here. Well, and why was there that line with um, Commissioner Hessen being like, I think that woman would eat her young. like. If this was an avenue that you wanted to explore about everybody thinking that she's a, you know, an NBA cunt, then explore that instead of just with a terribly photoshopped, like, vanity cover of NBA Monthly or whatever the fuck, where there she is, like, (laughs) holding her NBA. I'm in the treasury of poetry. Like, you have to you have to pay to be in that. I mean, there are moments where this could be interesting. Like, I do have a short clip where she's being D'Amato splained to. And she's like, this fucking guy. But then it doesn't go anywhere. And then by the end, you're supposed to think that she's this workaholic nightmare. But nothing on screen has sort of given you that or really anything else. Anyway, here's a clip that this is how we asked for a beer (laughs) in our house for like five years. You know how your dad and I negotiated my contract? We had a beer. Shook hands. Well, I don't drink beer, Tony. (laughs) I don't imagine you do, no. beer i mean (laughs) yeah there's actually a lot in there and she sort of gets like a fucking beer like she gets a lot into that really like this is this is how you're gonna talk to me i'm your boss but oliver stone is not the guy that you that you have sort of unpacking that so that's all you get this is again where him being such a scatterbrained oliver stone goofball at this point like really hurts because like I think that more films that feature NBA characters should really put the disdain for that type of personality type right on the surface. And yet somehow Stone manages to do it in a way where you're supposed to like nod along to Charlton Heston being like, what a bitch. Am I right? Like, I don't don't put me in a position where I have to agree with Charlton Heston as a viewer. I don't like that. Yeah. I picture this movie as being in this sort of aesthetic palette of all movies between like, I think, 97 and 2000. They all just look like Enemy of the State to me. Mm -hmm. Uh Pictures of a static cathode ray TV. Something's going to be blue for no reason. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then you're going to get like security footage of the street. And then it's going to cut and then it's going to be TV and it's going to be multimedia. Max headroom for like the WWW age. And too much. And it was, but it wasn't. It was sort of Oliver Stone's too muchness, which, you know, some of it's quite good. Some of it's very much not, but it goes for it. So I, even when I found myself hooting, like (laughs) another one of those sequences where you're going to get a thunderstorm of psychology. And, uh, (laughs) and it's the sound of somebody reading a, uh, a killed in action notice from the Second World War. Quiet, baby. Explain. 
skip that. <laughs> it's it's absurd. It absolutely takes away from the movie. But once, you know, after a while, you're like, well, it's an Oliver Stone movie. So all it can do is add. The only thing you could ever do to an Oliver Stone movie is add. There can only ever be more. Right. Like he's just got this endless board of tricks in front of him with sliders and he's just pushing them all like maxing out to the right, to the right, to the right on everything. And in this case, there's a lot of stuff, even within the first few minutes where it's like beyond what you were saying about this kind of like hyper, hyper kinetic switching of film stocks and styles. And, you know, like, why is this in heat vision? Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> there's also like all of the other things they that traded have... for the predator. <laughs> 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 that's that's what it looks like when you read a defense if you've been uh in the if you're like the version of john kitna that dennis quaid is playing in this you get a terminator style digital readout that's like 56 is the mic but in this case i think that there is like the music is insanely over the top throughout yeah even yes. by the standards of stone from this period there's just sound in every scene so much of it well, and then Moby worked on this soundtrack, which he just like remixed oh, the his own shit. additional music credits at the end are so good. And then there's like lions roaring and like the car wreck sounds, the Wilhelm scream. And I'm always happy to see Oliver Stone just like pre Ryan Murphying his favorite actors. So like there's um, James Karen, aka the Pathmark guy. Yeah, we love him doing his thing. And uh, John C. McGinley is always just given uh, Stone's just like, you're going to be an absolute fucking wretched asshole. Here's your pages. Good luck. And McGinley's like, I got you, boss. And <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start growing a goatee now. Yeah. <laughs> and that just like I'm going to go in my anger shack. The Lank <laughs> Forelock. Oh, I actually oh. have a clip, which is like, I mean, talk about a vanity-free performance. And the fact that this is a spot where the movie is less choppy and over-directed is like, you know, Oliver Stone really wants you to take this in, man. Sounds like a conspiracy. Are you saying that black people are being dissed in this league, Willie? I mean, I see what you're doing. You're doing them, that media spin or whatever that y'all do, but let's talk about the facts. I mean, 70% of the people in this league is African-American. But how many black coaches do you have? Very few. Very few. How many black owners? None. Zero. Right. At what point does the Uncle Tom feel come into it? Not my language. It is your language, because we didn't speak this language when we got here. But Coach Stone Age? <laughs> I mean, your smack is so fresh. I mean, it's so on time and truthful. Give me a pound, dog. Come on. Share I, the love. I'll, I'll pass on the love, dog. I, I just turned inside out from vicarious Same. shame. And then you go straight from that into what I think is Tony D'Amato asking a once again pantsless elizabeth berkeley to kind of marry him in a question mark there's a lot of a lot of cringing that i did even yeah. having seen this before i was like oh boy oh no i had forgotten especially the idea of like of all the social issues that stone is addressing again you know one at a time in this the idea that jim rome was considered a like a pressing social concern that on the order of racism and sexism was delightful to me yeah this is around the time that Jim Rome called Jim Everett of the Rams Chris Everett on TV and uh, Everett flipped a table over and beat his ass on television. Oh, yeah. So I guess it was kind of a big deal at the time. Thank you for reminding me that that happened. Yeah, it's incredible. And I had completely <laughs> I think I must have sympathetically forgotten the scene that you clipped too, because the like watching it. So I watched a bunch of this after my wife had gone to bed, just because she didn't want to see you there watching it. Yeah, well, it would have been more embarrassing than if she'd caught me like watching pornography. Like the idea of her like coming out and being like, "Are you asleep?" And I'm like, "No, I'm watching John McGinley say your science is so tight to Jamie Fox in a movie from 1999." <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's worse. I'll be on the road. It's a lot worse. Yeah, but I did watch that at one in the morning, and I had a. It was like I wouldn't whatever the opposite of a moment of clarity was i was like you just got to lean into this man <laughs> like hope that this scene gets worse and then it did as yeah. sarah said because al pacino is like you're the first woman i've had sex with in three years and i would love to marry you forever while she's like booking another client oh god and then his that wig on pacino is like rage makingly horrible and it just keeps getting worse i took like 17 screenshots of it and it's like my volcanic rage no one needs to see this like weird roostery thing and then the number of sideburn cam shots and then there's a shot from like 
the camera is placed on a ref's knees and shoots like up through his jock strap. Like, I don't who is why? There's some incredible angles in this. There's one at the end, a climactic shot from the perspective of the centers. Basically, the camera is looking up at the center's taint yes! as he snaps the ball to Willie Beeman. And it's like, you are the first person to have attempted this shot in a movie. But like before you pat yourself on the back, consider how many people could have done it and decided that that was a bad yeah, idea. Both sables twirling in their graves. Like there's a reason <laughs> none of our shit was licensed to y'all. And it is this. <laughs> how dare you? Yep. Cannot trust you with the integrity of the shield. No. You're just going to do somebody's underball area <laughs> because that shot's never been taken before. Well, like apparently their entire second unit was like contracted out from vivid video. Yeah. <laughs> I know that this is a Dennis Quaid podcast, and we, I know that we are going to talk about... I, I have picked up on that at this point. Um, initially, I was I was pretty surprised. I was like, why would someone do that? But uh, Same. Please don't make us ask that again. I don't, <laughs> don't want to hijack it too much. But what did you think of Pacino's performance? That was the thing that I remembered best from this movie. Really? <laughs> I did remember it best from this. No, mean, no, weirdly, I mean, I, like, the, are you... Are you really asking this? Like, I, I think yeah, this, I kinda this serious contemplation of this performance is, like, not an option that I thought was available, so... Well, that's what I mean, is that basically I have this idea of, like, a matrix on which Pacino performances can be graded. And I think that this is both good and bad Pacino existing at the same time in the same place in a really unique way. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that take. Yeah. I get the feeling that this was written for him. I don't know. I did not look this up before making this assertion, but one gets the feeling that this was written for him. And then this is the equivalent of him like putting on the green suit with the dots on it so that they can make him into CGI, <laughs> but then they don't make him into CGI. It's just him with the, you know, the yeah. wig floating. And then the rest of the concept of the character and its inhabiting actor was devoted to how do we get this tiny mushroom of a person into the frame with actual NFL-sized people. It's so good. And it is such, I think that is very obviously correct that like Pacino agreed to do mm -hmm. it. The dialogue is is like written for him and he delivers the hell out of it. Like this mm -hmm. is like in that way, like when he has a big speech, like I think he fucking kills it. Otherwise, though, he refuses to, like, no one has ever looked aesthetically less like an NFL coach than Al Pacino. <laughs> and he refused to do, I mean, you know, whatever, the movie makes some choices. They didn't make the coaches, like, dress up like people that work in the stadium, like the actual NFL does, you know. But he's out there looking real Pacino-y for a lot mm -hmm. of it, just like his shirt's open, like, four buttons down, like... Bernard Henry Levy levels of like male chest cleavage on display <laughs> while he's wearing like a scarf and a black suit. And you're like, this guy looks like he runs a jazz club like Al Pacino does. He does not look like somebody who's like giving Jim Brown instructions on no. the sideline of a football game. I got one Pacino take and the question. <laughs> uh, no, because I have a question for you. But no, so my my take is that when I saw this and, and where I placed this mentally in the the long arc of Pacino's career is that this is post scent of a woman mm -hmm. and everything post scent of a woman has that like one third chance that the hua switch got flicked and you're mm -hmm. going to get, you know, it might be good, but it's also going to be a parody of itself as it's happening. And yeah, I remembered that this was like that. And then watching it again, I was like, you know, I'm actually really inflating that there. This was a more nuanced and considered performance than I had written it off as. But there is just enough there that if you don't like that, you're not going to like it. Yeah. Yeah. I also got the distinct sense that he was like on his method bullshit, probably, and that some of the friction between characters is actually basically Jamie Foxx being like this fucking guy. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. This was like a version of Pacino that it's a, a comparatively rare Pacino. And, you know, again, on Jeb's Continuum, this is sleepy Pacino. Mm -hmm. He did this. I mean, Insomnia has this in it, too, mm -hmm. where he just kind of looks like shit and is doing a lot of like kind of jazzy vocalizations, but less actual yelling. That said, I think he was a very pr difficult person to be in a scene with when he's doing that. Right. Because he's like on that, like, I haven't slept in 36 hours shit. So he's just kind of going where he's going. Yeah. Mm hmm. <laughs> and I mean, I think Fox is terrific in this movie. Yeah. But he, at that time, like his character is much more of like a straight line performance. And if you're trying to like get those lines off and Al Pacino's like life 
You never know when you're going to eat lunch or breakfast. You never can tell what meal is going to have. But at the end of the day, you got to eat. <laughs> well, there's like a couple <laughs> times you could see Jim Brown just being like, we got it, right? Because I can't fucking sit here with this shit anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, right. you named me fucking Montezuma Monroe, and now I have to do 47 takes of this drunk guy? Okay. That's the thing that's also really good about, and again, feels like especially Pacino, like, if you have to keep his interest, and you give Al Pacino, like, a psych-up speech, he's gonna be like, there's not enough stuff in here about death and failure. <laughs> <laughs> and then like so there is a lot of that like for the sec the inches speech as and it's still good like still works absolutely played for me i'd forgotten how much of that is ruminative award season pacino mm -hmm. and like how little of it is shit that a football coach might actually say like right. like he starts off where he's like i failed everything in my life yep i'm almost dead <laughs> it's from it's sadness like the text of frank's wild years it's like yes, yeah <laughs> coach tomato moved out to the valley nailed his dreams <laughs> with wife's forehead <laughs> yeah so here's my question who do you think pacino thought he was portraying do you think he had a coach in mind was it the same coach that Oliver Stone had in mind? And is it who you have in mind when you watch him? Because I was watching him and going like, well, who does he think he is? You know, and, and the best I could think of was just sort of like the era is like, this is sort of a, I mean, obviously he wants him to be sort of like Lombardi, Landry-esque with the suit on the field, right? Right. But like in terms mm -hmm. of the team that he coaches and the attitude he has, it seems like he's doing a, a Parcells riff, you know, instead of Vinny Testaverde, it's <laughs> going like, you have to pass the ball sometime. It's Jamie Foxx, but I don't know. I was just wondering if you as a sports enthusiast came up with somebody. I mean, I have like nothing but NFL comps in my notes, basically. Go. Like the incident of the movie is far overwhelmed by me being like, is Willie Beeman supposed to be Josh Johnson? Is he supposed to be Joe Webb? Like just like name it, just remembering guys a go-go in there. I don't think that, I think you're probably right that there's an element of Parcells. There's clearly like an element of like late Landry, late Shula, where like the game was sort of passing them yeah, by. Shula. The difference is that like none of those guys were remotely like Al Pacino. Like they didn't have any insight. They didn't have any regrets. They went out bitter. They came in bitter, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's only so much, like there just aren't football coaches like this, which is part of the fun of it, I think, in some ways, because like if you played it straighter, or if you just dialed back the Oliver Stone stuff from like an 11 to a 7.8, like it might be more identifiably something that has happened in the real world at some point, but you would probably lose a lot of the, the fun stuff around the edges because like actual football coaches are way more like Aaron Eckhart's character, yeah. which is just like the fucking brush cut guys in golf shirts that like wake up super early in the morning and run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is like not as interesting a type of guy as... Like Al Pacino with his reading glasses on a chain around his neck, looking like he just crawled out of a barrel of whiskey and onto a sideline. Yeah, the moment that rang, I think, most false out of this whole movie, besides like anything sort of journalism related, like John C. McGinley's Jim Rome guy, like actually going and doing interviews in person yeah. and like filing a gamer typing on a computer yeah you bet <laughs> uh, was the moment where um, D'Amato was like, oh, no, the coach on the opposite side of the field, he's outfoxed me. Like the presumption that he's already been outwitted and he's only going to react to the other guy. It just seems so non-insanely hubristic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that point too about like Stone at some point just not being sufficiently interested in football, like it kind of does hold it back a little bit. Like the action itself can be hard to follow. The counterpunching and the strategy stuff, which the movie kind of gestures at, just isn't really unpacked or addressed in, a, in an interesting way. They're more like fight scenes than they are like a good sports scene where you have like some sense of like even what the score is a lot of the time is really sort of hard to, to pin well, down. Yeah, there were like continuity errors in that regard a couple of times at yes. moments that yeah. were supposed to be climactic. Like, oh, so is part of the CT losing time thing that you forgot what the score was? Because I don't <laughs> right. like the movie itself is experiencing the effects of uh, repeated blows to the head. Yeah, this seemed at times like I think he sort of admires the sport of football, but was also like, I want people who don't identify as football fans to go to this and feel like they're able to plug into the larger issues of sport. So that's why you have all these sort of cardboardy gestures to the issues of sport. And then that's also why you have this kind of fugazi imagining of how games are and why they're exciting. And again, 
NFL Films knows how to shoot this so that you know what the fuck is going on and there's not a bunch of, like, weather systems happening emotionally. God, yes. (laughs) That part of it, I think also that, like, some of the stuff that I found, I mean, the shots that Stone likes of football are, like, passes in the air and then you sort of, like, get a sense of where the pass is going later in the shot, like, sort of the deeper focus type of thing like that. Again, it's interesting. And then that like shaky handheld cam of like a player running and trying to like make a decision on the fly. I think a little bit of that could have worked if the football stuff was more legible otherwise. Right. But it's like what should have been the disorienting counterpunching aspect to the like more legible stuff is the entirety of it. It's 90%. And how much of this do we think is because he had to shoot it in a certain way so you couldn't tell? Like, there's a couple of long shots where, like, there's just literally not enough people on the field of play based on what you see in an NFL (laughs) football game. The rules of football. Or, like, he's trying to, like, well, here are the cheerleaders, and it's like, those look like dollar store costumes. Everything about it is so unflattering. These are not dancers. You're Oliver Stone. Spend some money somewhere to make this look like the national game, which it is and was. Like, some of it is um, that he wants to make a movie about football that will entertain people who hate football. And then some of it is this just looks, you know, this is the Canal Street NFL. We need to score the actual movie. So, Dave, we have a 10-point rating system, 10 high, 1 low. How do you feel about this movie? It's a weird 7. Yeah? Or even maybe a a 7.5. Like, I I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed watching it. It's also a hash and doesn't make any damn sense. But, like, no regrets on spending two and a half hours. Well, maybe half of that I regret. (laughs) But, I mean, that's still pretty good. Yeah. Sarah? I am going to come in at a a 7.5 also. It is bad, cheap poorly done and sometimes you can almost smell that sort of like metallic ozone that's like people have been doing poppers in here but it's not (laughs) boring like even when it is cringy or you're like who allowed this to happen you're not bored and it's also like both extremely hard to follow and not hard to follow at all like at the end of the day everything is text and not that much happens so yeah seven and a half I went in thinking it was probably going to be, from what I remembered about, you know, everything it put in, something else would take out an equal amount. I'd be just stuck at five. And then I kept finding moments where I was like, I enjoyed that. (laughs) And I realized like that for a movie that's going to be on on like TBS or something, it's going to have a dozen moments that like, oh, I want to watch until that next scene. Mm-hmm. So I can get that bit because like even if Poppy the whole, feels, yeah, yeah, it doesn't quite add up. There are just enough things that you're like, yeah, that was pretty good bit. That was a pretty good bit. Yeah, well, you know, I've been here for Jesus, two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. I was coming in at like six and a half maybe, but just in the process of talking, I uh, thought more of things I enjoyed. So I was talked up to a seven already. And then you guys were just a half a step above me. We did along. it, Sarah. We did. We did it. So we've come to Quaid Qua Quaid. David, we have to contemplate, size, and evaluate the quaidity of uh, the Quaid role, the Quaid presence in this. You can get as metaphysical as you want about this, Dave. How did you feel about Dennis? It's pretty good, Dennis, in the sense that a lot of the acting is communicated through grimacing and yeah. sounds, mm-hmm. which I think of as being like kind of the essence of the version of Dennis Quaid that gets jammed into sports movies, which kind of it happened to him a lot. Yeah. I think just as like, a physically fit white guy that could throw a ball convincingly. But there's like a midlife sort of crisis that the character is enduring that I imagine that Dennis Quaid being cast at the age of, I guess he was 44 or 45 when this movie was made. And he's cast as a 38-year-old quarterback. He looks much older than that. (laughs) But I guess I was just sort of like, maybe I was adding it, maybe I was writing some sort of pathos into it. But like playing a guy that's on his last ride and just trying to go out like a warrior or whatever, NFL players can't let themselves think like that. I don't imagine that people with Dennis Quaid's job can really permit themselves to think like that either. Like, you just have to believe that you're still a leading man and the biggest fucking star in the world until, like, the moment the lights go Mm -hmm. out. 
But there is an element of like the parts of the performance that are supposed to make you feel for the character, just in terms of like Stone typically understated underscores all this by playing the entirety of Bill Withers' Use Me. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like during his last scene where you just basically like, you can keep on using me till you yeah. use me up. Like there I is get it. like a sense <gasps> of Quaid getting that. Yeah. Well, it's not actually my issue with this. I think Dennis Quaid is pretty good in this. It's sort of a variation on something we already saw in Everybody's All-American, which was both better written and worse done by him at the time. Mm -hmm. But this isn't really his story. But Oliver Stone really wants to sort of bring us, but like, and meanwhile, in the Rooneyverse... So then there's Tony D'Amato showing up at some barbecue at their giant McMansion and he has like an actual barbecue chef's toque on. Like what? The <laughs> this is, can't emphasize that enough. Dennis Quaid does wear a toque in this movie. Why is this happening? And then he's like, you want more mustard? It's like, we do not need any more fucking mustard on anything in this movie. Please <laughs> put that away. But there's definitely this sense like there were whole 45 minutes of footage of kind of backstory and dimensionalizing this marriage and Lauren Holly having his balls in her Louis Vuitton or whatever that I'm glad it got cut because what we saw wasn't wasn't entirely going to play. But um, I thought he was good given what he got to do. I think he looks too old for his stated age in this movie. I think he's got no ass, and that's an issue, but there are moments where he definitely has this corn pony, placid, just sort of being accustomed to being the man, and the ripples in the surface of that, that I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah. Anyone who has to say the phrase, I don't give a gee whiz, or he doesn't give a gee whiz, <laughs> and like manages to just do that. In a scene where LL Cool J is like, but my Reebok money. Actually, I have a clip, so let's just hear that now. How much you paying that 300-pound blocker? Let him block. Because they sure can't run, not like I can. Hey, hey J-Man's got a point. B-Man ain't doing his homework. He's not reading the playbook. He ain't coming in to see the films. He, he doesn't even know the names of the defense that he's facing. I mean, he's... He don't give a gee whiz about anybody. Yeah, he just wants to make the plays himself. He's young, Cap. He doesn't know how to read like you. You mean he's young? Come on, Crozier. He just does what he likes. I wish this had more LL Cool J slash were about LL Cool J's capitalist leanings, but it isn't. It's about other things. So yeah, LL playing a flashy, selfish running back is one of those things where like, yeah, you see the, the media calling him selfish and like, I guess to watch that in 2021, it's easy to sort of recoil from that because it's so, it's not even coded. No, you know? it's, I mean, it's, it's just not right there text. on the surface. Yep. Yeah, whatever the opposite of coded is. Yeah, here's the key to that. But also, like, it's unclear, like, whether the film knows that. Like, so he's just playing, like, a brash dickweed. And, you know, like, he's good when he's making plays. And uh, when he's otherwise talking and doing things, you're supposed to be like, oh, I hate this guy. He reminds me of Terrell Owens. Ugh. Terrell Owens, by the way, is literally in this film. Yeah. So is someone called Joseph Unitas. There's, there are a lot of things <laughs> happening. I'd also like to say LT is quite good. Super yeah. good. I mean, of all the uh, the performances, weirdly speaking, like there's something about how unpolished and like unfussy his performance mm -hmm. is versus everybody else just, you know, absolutely revving it up and giving 100% of their actorly ability. I found him very affecting. Like, I was yeah. really surprised at how good he was. He has that moment where like you think he's dead and then he's like, so did I stop him? And I was like, sniff. Like, I mean, I've, I have seen movies yeah, before, right. but I was still like, all right, that was... You got me. You actually like edited that yeah. sort of well enough. <laughs> Not quite. Anyway, Jeb, I have some uh, I have some questions for you about Dennis Quaid baby voice TM. Here it is. <sighs> I got blank spots in my memory. It's weird. And I shake. Sometimes I can't even hold a spoon. And I'm always on painkillers for my elbow or my rib or my neck. Now I got this ruptured disc and I just... <clears throat> Even with all that, I would go back in a second. But if I go in there, Tony, I... I'm gonna fold. <laughs> and I just... 
I can't do that. This is, for him, rather well acted, but it's just not how this character would talk ever. So that's a problem, but it's not a Dennis Quaid problem. Yeah, the introspection that he has and the I'm weak, I just don't think that you can get to have that position as a pro quarterback and be able to think that way. I think you'd pretty much just have to default to, uh, as Dave said, like, I'm a superstar, I'm the brightest in the world until the lights go out. But yeah, I thought this way that the, the character was presented played to the strengths of what we've been seeing as sort of like weaknesses mm-hmm. over the last season. Yeah. The sheepishness and the like not really knowing what to do with his emotional constipation and looking a little too scared mm-hmm. yeah. rather than let's say conflicted. It's just, it comes out as like worry or anxiety and here because of the structure of the plot, all that plays really well. Yeah. And so if you're going to have a poet for a QB, I would imagine that this is the sort of like Hamleting we would get from him. Yeah. It's similar in that way to the justifiably more famous Pacino scenes from it in that like, It's a well-acted bit of, like, not even poorly written dialogue that is just wildly out of place in the broader context of being a football movie. Yeah. Which is tough, though, because, like, you can look the part all you want. You know, the fact that, like, he, I think, probably looks more like a veteran NFL quarterback than Al Pacino looks like an NFL coach. Mm -hmm. But, like, that is, as we've already, I think, underlined at length, a pretty low bar to clear. (laughs) Uh, it's It's still tough to, like get that sort of stuff over when you're like wearing football pads, you know? Yeah. Like that's not how Philip Rivers' brain works. Right. Or, you know, <laughs> Elways or, you know, I've started calling it the like Dennis Del Mar conundrum that like the Ennis Del Mar character, like part of the reason that that was so affecting and that Heath Ledger's performance was so affecting is that men like that are not going to be exterior about anything. And not everybody is good at having nothing happening on the surface, but communicating to the audience of a visual medium that something is still happening. It's really hard to do. And Dennis Quaid Mm -hmm. does not do it very well. And as we said, it often winds up looking like, I mean, Jeb and I do not come down on the same side of the question of whether it's, oh my God, I have to poo or, oh my God, I haven't pooed in two weeks. There is poo (laughs) and there is concern about the poo. But here, he gets this speech to play pretty well, even though this speech would never occur. Like, he would never say this to the coach. He would never, he might say it to his wife. It's just not, I just don't think it's a scene that would happen. So just for his presence in the movie and how much it at least stuck in my mind that he did the 40 something QB clinging to relevance pretty well. Like, I went in thinking it was going to be at least like around a five. It's it's bad Dennis Quaid ticks being used for a good purpose, but they're still not great and it's still not like Quaidy Quaidy because there's no rascaliness and there's no sense of like, I don't know if this guy fucks. I mean, I guess he doesn't. <laughs> not, not with that disc, he doesn't. I hadn't thought about that as being like a crucial element of the Quaid thing, but there is that kind of like naughty boy horniness from like, what was the one in, in New Orleans with Ellen Barkin? No, I know brother, that that was the like big easy. A big deal for him. <laughs> Where dancing is a way easy. of life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, dancing is a way of life down there, Dave. It is so true. And also being sweaty, as I mm-hmm. recall, is yep. a oh, really yeah. big part of the culture. We love that like a pig loves corn. <laughs> but yeah, like that's like what I think of as being like the er Dennis Quaid performance, you know, where he's just kind of like out there winking at people and his characters had six drinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lapels as wide as a cab door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In this case, yeah, this is more of a a different sort of like, this is like constipated off Percocet Mm. and feeling uncomfortable despite uh, having all this money. I don't know how you fit one into the other. So I I was thinking on the scale of 10 again, Dave, like around a six, because it's better than you would think with the elements. And he carries a lot. And I think this is, you know, as we're kind of like changing the the archetype of quaidity as he ages into more of like the... The guy who goes in to fuck a co-ed, but he's like, I'm getting too old for this shit. He fucks her anyway. (laughs) Right? But, you know, he's like, there's a bit where he does a lumbar stretch first. (laughs) You know, so like, kind of as the definition is evolving. I don't know, Sarah, am I off base? I mean, help help Dave get his way into this category. Well, I mean, as we heard recently, I think Tara's framing of it in The Parent Trap, which, okay, Disney movie and, you know, not a lot of overt fucking there, but like the idea that you know that the character fucks is critical. 
But there are also other axes, like how much of the runtime is he in? Do you see his teeth? Was he cast incorrectly to do something that he can't do? So I think that this is a pretty quady role sort of in the in the imagination. Then when you actually watch it, like, okay, he's not the focus necessarily, and he's not in every second of it. The grin doesn't show up for a while. I mean, the first time you see his teeth, it's because he's writhing around because Bone is touching Bone in his back. I don't think that Lauren Holly character has permitted him <laughs> to fuck her, and even if she <laughs> did, he can't bend over to pick up a shoe off the floor without screaming in pain. And yet, I, I think that this is going to be one of the roles that is mentioned, like it won't be the lead in the obit, but it'll be the first paragraph. So uh, I'm going to say seven and a half again. I think seven seems fair to me or seven and a half in that regard, like because it is the idea of it is a transitional quade, I think makes a lot of sense to Liminal me. Liminal quade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's like, I guess at some point the rakishness isn't there, but like it's not. I don't know. It's not his fault. Like, it's an interesting character for him to have played at this point in his career. And I think he does it about as well as he can do it. Yeah. Or about as well as, you know, the sort of broader restrictions of being in this movie and in the role that he has in this story, like as much as he could be permitted in that context. Yeah. Okay. I don't have anything except one little nugget I discovered when I went to IMDb to look up where the locations were. They shoot at a um, an old house called the Vizcaya in Miami, which I've been to, but it also, there are other houses in Florida that are appear similar to it. And I thought maybe they had shot there and I was checking. Anyway, there is a tagline listed. It's the only tagline on the landing page for any given Sunday. And it is that women would eat her own children. <laughs> there we go. Wow. How is Babby formed? Dave, do you have an IMDb dive? I mean, a little bit of one. It's mostly usually when we do this on the Hallmark podcast, it's because I'm trying to figure out if the person that directed the movie where Candace Cameron takes 85 minutes to kiss a boy. <laughs> like, have they ever directed anything that wasn't like that? Were they in Brown Bunny? Yeah. <laughs> the names in this are very recognizable, but there's a lot of football guys in it. And I was excited to see who from the, the world of professional football in 1999 had smallish parts or appearances in this movie and there's a lot uh you got robert pig goff and terrell owens mazio royster Derek lassick bjorn nitmo who maybe would ring a bell for sarah if you cared at all about the football giants mm -mm. yeah my friends and i were fascinated by him because for a while the giants would just have kickers with uh really like kind of like ostentatiously fake slash foreign seeming <laughs> names for a couple of weeks parcells loved cutting guys like that like, he would, like, bring in Ali Haji Sheik just to cut him and be like, I want to get an Italian guy. And, like, whatever everybody in my town would be like, I love him. I wish he was my dad. <laughs> um, anyway, so Ricky Waters, Skip McClendon, a lot of our friends, some of, so many of our favorite players from that era. <laughs> no. Joe Jerovicious. We love to see Joe. <laughs> we, love, we love him. Big Joe. We call him Big Joe. He drops a lot of passes, but we don't mind. The other credit that I want to mention, Sarah mentioned that the, uh, at the end that there's additional music by Moby, and then right under that is just Swizz Beat, yeah. unpluralized. I guess he had not yet gotten to that point in his career where he'd made more than one beat, but it was cool to, to, to see Swizz in there. <laughs> the real credit that I want to share with everyone, though, as with every Oliver Stone movie from this period, there's like 600 fucking people whose names appear in the credits. There's like two dozen people who are just credited as Party Girl. Mm hmm but there is, I think, the last person credited on the IMDb page uh, who is like a friend in the owner's suite during some of the scenes that they cut back to with Cameron Diaz. There's an actress named Doris Condom. <laughs> wow. With an M, which uh, I had not seen that one before. Hadn't seen that last name. That was a new one on me. And certainly I can't think of a funnier first name to put on it. So, you know, I know that we're not going to do a, a Doris Condom dedicated podcast to every film that she appeared in. But I do want to note that she did appear in this one. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, my only IMDb note is that uh, it's once again a um, cast reunion, this time from gang related. I don't think they're ever on screen at the same time. But uh, Layla Rashon is uh, Beeman's. Once in future, lady friend. Wow. Kevin Reynolds gang-related. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, no, that, that wasn't Kevin Reynolds. No, it wasn't. Yeah, gang-related was weirder. Yeah. That was one that's like Tupac and Jim Belushi in it or something. Mm -hmm. we, we reviewed that podcast, that movie I on know, this I know, I know. That's how I know about it. We talked about it. I see. Well, I'll have to listen to it on your podcast. What's it called? The podcast that you do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> He's an arrogant son of a bitch, but I'm going to listen. 
Listen up, rookie. Season five is over. You're far from heaven now, but you'd be in good company if you could get trafficked the day after tomorrow on the flight of the Phoenix for a dinner with friends next time on Quaid in Full for season six. Also with Frequency, Cold Creek Manor, The Alamo, and Freedom, A History of Us. In the meantime, give me a pound, dog. And check out the show notes and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. Wondering when your favorite Quaid joint is getting covered or want to advertise on a specific film or TV show's episode? DMs are open. Or get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? He don't give a gee whiz about anybody. Go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next season. What the fuck just happened?